Hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, a weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And the brown tags are back. The legislature is back, at least for a couple of days. A lot of answers to questions we've been ruminating about here on the podcast for the past few weeks, even months. You know, kind of what does the 2019 legislature look like in terms of who is sitting in some key positions. We can finally answer some questions. You've been there, Clark, for the past couple of days. You know, give us kind of the rundown. Yeah, I just actually walked back uh, from the State House just a couple of minutes ago, and the big news today on Friday is that uh, State Representative Lance Clow, a Republican from Twin Falls, has been tapped to lead the House Education Committee. Uh, that's the big news today. And we knew that House Ed was wide open and it was up for grabs because both the previous chair, Representative Julie Van Orden, and the previous vice chair, former Representative Patrick McDonald, lost at the polls this year. So we knew committee control of that committee was wide open. And so now we know that House Ed is going to be led by uh, Lance Clow and the vice chairmanship is going to go to uh, Representative Ryan Kirby, a Republican from New Plymouth, who is the retired superintendent of the local school district right. there and, and, in and New Plymouth. And hardly newcomers to House education. I mean, both Clow and uh, Kirby have been on that committee for several years. Yeah, I think Clow's been on that committee for six years, and Kirby's been on it for the past four. So both of them, uh, not the most senior members of House education, but certainly experienced uh, dealing with education issues. Even though Representative Kirby has a little bit less legislative experience, he has much more education policy experience. Sure. I talked to Speaker Scott Bedke about that this morning after the chairmanships were announced. And he said that was a big part of the decision, that he liked Representative Clow's work ethic, uh, his experience on house education, and his experience in local government. Uh, Lance Clow's a former mayor and city council member in Twin Falls. Uh, but he said, really, we're going to have a strong... Uh, dynamic within the committee because we have a very strong vice chair uh, is the term that he used to describe Kirby and said that Klaus probably going to rely uh, on Kirby and lean on his experience quite a bit, uh, whether it comes to decisions about the new proposed school funding formula to talk about how that could affect education and local school districts. But uh, yeah, Speaker Bedke predicted uh, that Representative Clow and Representative Cl uh, Kirby will work closely together and that Representative Clow can learn from Representative Kirby is, uh, is, is what he predicted. Something interesting in your story Friday, in your interview Friday with uh, Representative Clow and now uh, Chairman Clow, is he sounded some concerns about that school funding formula and the way it looks and the impact that it may have on school districts and charters. And, and Clow has been watching this process. We've seen him in the back of the uh, committee room uh, for the past few months. He's not on the funding formula committee, but he's been in the room watching the committee meetings. And, and he expressed some concern about the, you know, the winners and losers that a new funding formula might create. He did, and this is something that we have talked about uh, the last few months covering the funding formula committee. But I believe the latest draft, the proposed draft of the rewrite, I believe 36 school districts would expect, districts or charters, by right. the way, mm -hmm. would expect to see receive less funding than they did for the 2017-18 budget year because of the way the uh, new formula could change the way the funds are distributed based on enrollment and then with demographic weights applied. And when I talked to Representative Cloud this morning, he said that really, you know, that that was something he picked up on this summer and this fall as he watched the committee work. But he really said his experience in state government showed him, 
how important that could be and, and how to pay attention to winners and losers and, and consequences of actions and so forth. And so he didn't, he didn't play his hand. He didn't tell me um, what he's going to do or how this is going to play out. But he did say, I see this. Uh, this is something that I've noticed. This is something that's a concern. And this is something that school superintendents are saying a concern. And so he didn't make any promises. He didn't make any predictions um, at all about the funding formula and its fate. But he did say, uh, I'm looking at this. I'm aware of this. And this has me a little bit worried. And as someone who has a lot of local government experience, he said, sits kind of close to home. Right. And, and as... A member of House Education, and Clark, you sit in House Education almost on a daily basis during the legislative session. Uh, Representative Klaus' track record on education issues, maybe not as long as, uh, you know, as I recall, probably the most, you know, meaningful thing that I recall from from, uh, Representative Klaus on House Education was his skepticism about the new science standards and uh, some of the wording and science standards uh, pertaining to climate change and global warming. I mean, but beyond that, he's not a terribly ideological legislator. There, there are more conservative Republicans on that uh, House Education Committee. Is it fair yeah, to say? yeah. Um, I, I think that's fair to say. He, he is a Republican, but I would not put him uh, within the most conservative wing of the House. He was also not the most outspoken member of House Education. Uh, just, you know, me going off my own personal impressions as someone who's been there almost every day for the last few sessions, as you've pointed out, some of the stronger personalities on that committee had been Representative Ryan, Ryan Kirby, Kirby. yes. Who's He's very now, outspoken on a lot of things. Who's now the vice chair, who's very outspoken, very influential, very powerful legislator, even for someone who is just beginning his third term, only really has four years under his belt. And then the other uh, strong, outspoken member of House Education uh, was Representative, Representative Scott Syme out of the Caldwell area. But a change of assignment for Representative Syme this morning, uh, he is leaving the House Education Committee to accept a seat on the budget-setting Joint Finance Appropriation Committee. Uh, so there's going to be a couple changes down at the rank-and-file level of House Education. Uh, at least one of the new representatives is going to take a seat on House Education, and that's Representative Bill Gosling, a former member of the State Board right. of Education, mm-hmm. uh, will be joining uh, the House Education Committee. A couple of other changes in the works there as well. I'm looking to get confirmation, though. It was read aloud across the desk this morning, uh, but I want to see it on paper to make sure I got all the names and all the changes correct, because education is a large committee. 16 members last year. I only picked up on 15 members this morning, so I want to make sure either that it has dropped a member or that I didn't miss someone before I, I go through and publicize the whole list. But I expect a couple changes. And, and go to iadoednews.org and, and get the full lineup on house education. Let's talk about some of the other committees and some of the stuff that we do know about. Uh, you, you touched on a little bit on JFAC. Uh, we have two new chairs in JFAC. We knew that was coming because uh, the co-chairs, uh, Senator Sean Keogh and Representative Maxine Bell, were retiring. Now we know who's going to be in charge in JFAC. And now we know uh, what Wendy Horman's role is going to be on JFAC. So get us caught up there as well. That was the other big news over the last couple of days. On the Senate side, the Senate co-chair is going to be Senator Steve Baer, who's a Republican from Blackfoot. I believe he— for a while. Ten years, I think he told me yesterday that he served on JFAC. And then Senator Dan Johnson will be the vice chair over on the Senate side. Coming back to JFAC, uh, Johnson had been on there before. But not last session, I don't believe. No, no, he had not been on— 
but he is coming back now. Correct. And now we know on the House side who we have uh, chair and vice chair. Yes, Representative Rick Youngblood. Representative Rick Youngblood, I believe he's yes. a Republican uh, from Nampa from or Nampa. from the Nampa area, Nampa, uh, is going to be the chair on the House side. And then the vice chair on the House side is Representative Wendy Horman, a Republican from Idaho Falls. Um, that's a position that she had wanted. She had wanted uh, a, a leadership role, a little bit more prominent role on JFAC. And Representative Horman, some of our readers and listeners may remember that name. She has really carried and helped set the public school budget um, with a, a team of lawmakers, but she's really taken a leadership role in the public school budget in particular over the last maybe three, four years. Heavily involved, former school board member from the Bonneville uh, School District. And so now we know... Uh, those, those were really the, the big questions that we had. Who's going to lead House Education? We know that. Who's going to lead JFAC? Um, we know that. Mm-hmm. And we also know uh, w- what uh, the landscape looks like on the Senate Education Committee. Not a lot of big changes there. Uh, Dean Mortimer is going to remain as chair of the Senate Education Committee. There had been some scuttlebutt and some rumbling of would uh, Senator Mortimer look to move up within the ranks on JFAC, where he's also uh, been a member for, for some time. But he's going to stay put as chair of uh, JFAC. Uh, Stephen Thane, who had been the vice chairman, is still going to be on JFAC. Uh, Lori Dan Hartog from uh, Meridian is also staying on JFAC. The two Democrats, uh, Sheree Buckner-Webb and Janie Ward-Engelking, are intact. Three new senators. The three new senators. On Senate education. And they're all first-term senators. You have uh, Senator Dave Lent, who's a longtime uh, member of the Idaho Falls School Board, has taken a seat on the Senate Education Committee, as has Senator Jim Woodward. He's a Republican from Sagal. That's District 1. That's the old seat that Senator Sean Keogh held. Right. And then Senator Don Cheatham, a Republican from Post Falls. Most recently, he was a member of the House uh, and was a member of the House Education Committee. So he's just moving down the hallway, so to speak. Uh, he left the House and ran successfully for the Senate this year. So that's a smaller committee, um, but three new members of Senate Education, but nothing new at the top. Like right. you said, a little bit of speculation about if changes happened at JFAC, could that trickle down to leadership of Senate Education? But we now know uh, that Chairman Dean Mortimer, the Republican senator from Idaho Falls, as you said, will continue to lead Senate education. Right, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Winder, uh, Boise Republican, also the co-chair of the Funding Formula Committee, he's staying on the Senate Education Committee, which is really important as this funding formula issue uh, works its way through the, the two uh, education committees. Yeah, so this kind of sets the stage a little, a little bit, right? We do know uh, the legislative session will open uh, January 7th. Uh, that will be kicked off with a state one of— month today, one, one month from today. One month from today, not that we're counting. Uh, that'll be kicked off with a State of the State address from Governor-elect Brad Little. Uh, and he will really set the tone with a budget recommendation, uh, with a policy speech— and uh, But we're really starting to see some of the personalities uh, that will be involved in the decision-making process, starting to speculate a little bit about what will play out. And i got to say, after being over there the last two days, a lot of caution uh, 
when we talk about this budget next mm-hmm. year, there were some signs an economist spoke at a taxpayers' convention uh, earlier in the week on Wednesday about how a recession may be on the way. Even before that, we knew that state revenues were not meeting projections. I talked to the Speaker of the House, Scott Bedke, about that a little bit today. I'll have more on that next week, but he said, you know, some of it may have to do with the withholding tables and our tax collections. Some of that may have to do with whether the economy is slowing down or even turning around. He does not know, but he thinks that there's going to be a lot of caution uh, when it comes to revenue projections and when it comes to budget setting. Representative Wendy Horman, uh, now in an elevated role on JFAC, has also sounded some cautionary notes uh, when it comes to the budget. Uh, And so remember that. That may come into play. There are a lot of projects on the docket, a lot of competition for state funding, for state resources, as always. We do know that um, the legislatures, many legislators have prioritized fulfilling the fifth year of their obligation for teacher salaries under the career letter. This would be the last year. Uh, that's on top this. That's on tap this year. But you've got also, at the same time, you've had some lawmakers uh, sound concern that the Medicaid expansion, which has now been approved by the voters, could place pressure on the budget to the point where it may jeopardize funding for education initiatives such as the career ladder. So it's going to be very... A lot of talk about that. A lot of talk about some kind of... And this isn't something that we cover, but a lot of talk about whether it's a new prison or some kind of prison's correction solution. Um, That could get costly. That's not something we really cover, but it could impact the budget. And so it's important to think about these things. Um, Because it may be a little bit tighter the year this year. It may be even a more conservative budget than we've been used to. Um, We'll see. It's a process that will play out slowly and incrementally uh, between January and probably mid to late March. And we'll be there watching the key budget meetings, but definitely some concern in the air right now, more so than we've seen the last two years about revenues, about budget setting, and about how comfortable they will be funding new programs or or increasing funding levels. That really could play out this year. That could affect education in a significant way. In what way specifically? We don't know yet, though. Welcome to the governor's office, Brad Little, because this is what uh, he's going to be dealing with uh, as he writes his first budget and as he uh, does his first State of the State address. So a lot coming out of the legislature this week. But that isn't the only uh, area of news this week. Big news from the Boise School District, Idaho's second second largest school district. Uh, You are on the story, Kevin, but some leadership changes coming and perhaps coming quickly to the Boise School District. What did you find out? Yeah, if there's such a thing as a quiet bombshell, this was a quiet bombshell because it really came from out of nowhere and it was really sort of soft-pedaled. Don Coberly, the longtime superintendent of the Boise School District, is retiring at the end of the school year. And I think it would be overstating the case to say that he announced his retirement. Uh, The news of his retirement sort of trickled out on Wednesday. So so what happened was on Wednesday morning, we started to get some some tips that something was happening at the Boise District. And late Wednesday morning, lo and behold, the Boise School Board posted an agenda for a special meeting with two agenda items. Item one, accepting the retirement of the superintendent and item two, which we'll get to and talk about a little bit more here, uh, adopt a succession plan for the next superintendent. So there you go. Um, you know, there was no presser. There was no announcement. Uh, there was not 
Don Coberly sitting before a bank of uh, microphones and cameras talking about uh, his plans to retire. There wasn't even a, a news release. It was uh, that was how the retirement sort of rolled its way out. Um, and that kind of leads us to, to Thursday and really kind of an interesting, like I say, special board meeting held with about 24 hours notice, barely 24 hours notice as the state law requires. Half of that 30 minute meeting was spent uh, praising Don Coberly for his 30 plus years in the school district. And he's worked his way up the ladder, including the past nine years as superintendent. And then the final 15 or so minutes was spent trying to figure out how to proceed with this vacancy. And that's where it got a little bit uh, more contentious. Uh, uh, divided school board deciding to essentially make Kobe Dennis, the district's deputy superintendent, their one and only applicant for the job at this point. They invited Dennis to interview for the job. <laughs> He'll surely take up the invitation. And the... <laughs> And as you know, the board president, Nancy Gregory, put it, it's very unlikely that uh, he won't be the next superintendent of the Boise School District. And her hope is that this is going to be uh, sewn up and you know, the announcement will be made before Christmas break, which means uh, we're looking at sometime before December 21st. Very fast timetable. Two weeks from today. And a, very, and a not very public process in terms of the interviewing uh, uh, Kobe Dennis will be interviewed in, a, in an executive session. Uh, there will not be a public component to this search. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about like the Nampa School District a couple of years ago, right. where it was an external search. Uh, there were uh, sessions with the finalists, where the finalists met with parents and staff and students. Really, anybody who wanted to show up could listen to the finalists talk about what they wanted to do if, uh, if hired as superintendent. Contrast that to this very closed process for the, the second largest district in the state um, and a very fast track process. And that's where uh, there was some disagreement within the school board. Uh, a couple of trustees, including Dennis Doan, who was also Boise's fire chief, the newest member of the school board appointed only in October, pushing for a, a slower process and a more open process where the district invited external candidates to to apply. And I gotta say, I, I, I'm not gonna give anything away here, but we have both met over the past weeks and couple months, really, with a couple of movers and shakers in the Boise area who've been concerned about this, who basically told us this is how it would play out, and who said, you know, maybe we should pump the brakes. You know, maybe a district in this position uh, could launch a national search in between the quality of life and the things that are already going on in our district could really land some interesting candidates. Um, yeah, you mean, know, there was some speculation about maybe we should open this up for a national search. Maybe that would be something we could do to take the next level. And, 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 and certainly Kobe Dennis could right. apply for that and have the opportunity to rise to the top uh, of that applicant pool potentially because of his experience and knowledge with the district. But definitely yeah. some movers and shakers in Boise have been saying to us for weeks that they were afraid that this would happen, and they thought that it should be opened up to a national search, right? Right, right. And, yeah, let's let's backtrack a little bit on what Dennis Stone was saying, and also Beth Oppenheimer, who was the other trustee who voted in favor of a national search as opposed to uh, simply interviewing Kobe Dennis. Neither Doan nor Oppenheimer are criticizing Kobe Dennis. Not at all. And that's not what I'm saying, trying to suggest no, that, and I'm not trying not to either. say he's a bad candidate or a flawed candidate in any way. Right, but... 
I think what both Doan and Oppenheimer were saying and what we've kind of heard through the grapevine the past few weeks, it kind of tracks. In a lot of ways, the Boise superintendent's job, you would think, would be a pretty attractive administrative job. It's the for, second for highest paid superintendent in the state today. Second highest paid, second largest district in the state. And a district that is doing well in a lot of metrics in terms of getting students to go on past high school. Graduation numbers are pretty good. Reading scores have been pretty good. Uh, a lot of students take advanced placement classes. Uh, a big bond issue uh, approved overwhelmingly uh, by voters in 2017. You wouldn't pretty, walk in and face a good, mess. Pretty good relationships between the district and the teachers' union. So contract negotiations have been fairly smooth. And all of that reflects on Don Coberly's record. I mean, Coberly leaves with a very strong uh, set of accomplishments. You, you know, credit, credit definitely, uh, you know, is due there. What it means is that for the next superintendent, and obviously that's probably going to be Kobe Dennis, he's going to walk into a situation that's pretty good. There, there isn't a fire that needs to be put out right away. Contrast to a couple of years ago when uh, Linda Clark left the West Ada School District in turmoil, a turmoil between her and the, the school board. I mean, it was, you know, there was mutual tension there. I'm not putting it all on Linda Clark. I'm not putting it all on trustees. There was a real dysfunctional relationship going on there. Nampa had a difficult situation a few years before that. Budget issues that were still affecting the district even as uh, as they made changes in the superintendent's position. So the Boise position, not as much of a crisis situation by any no. by any measure. So yeah, you would think that if you did an external search, you might get some really interesting candidates. Uh, apparently, we're not ever really going to know for sure because this is how the uh, the school board has elected to to go. We'll watch the process. But right now, the process <laughs> feels a lot like a fait accompli. I, I mean, we got, we got to do say that there is some context, though. Uh, I don't remember the uh, process nine years ago, but Don Coberly was obviously an in-house, an in-house candidate, uh, groomed from within the district, uh, succeeding Stan within, Olson. Was hired from within. After I didn't cover that search process. I wasn't even here, but... Um, no, I mean, and from... From a resume standpoint, there is kind of a lot of similarities here. I mean, Coberly was promoted to the superintendent's position after, you know, about a quarter century in the Boise School District. Kobe Dennis has been there now for a little bit over a quarter of a century. And, you know, that was kind of the argument within the school board on Thursday, the question of doing a broad national search as opposed to uh, Maria Greeley, one of the trustees, put it. We have a succession plan. We've been doing this. Uh, it allows staff within the district to know that they have a place to advance, that they can continue their career, they can move up the ladder, they don't have to leave the Boise district to advance their careers. And as she put it, it allows the district to get some return on its investment in human capital. If you if you groom and you develop staff, you get the payoff down the road if they are promoted to a top position. So, yeah. Nobody was arguing that internal candidates shouldn't apply for the position, right. but the question was whether the only candidate should be an internal candidate. But that is uh, obviously the direction the yeah, district yeah, is I mean, going. I think to simplify things, the other side of the coin was, you know, put a sign in the window, so to speak, and see who walks in the door. Uh, just see what you get. See what the applicant pool would be like. But that's not the way they're going to go. It doesn't appear. They value uh, stability. They value a, a grow-your-own mindset. And the relationship, obviously, the relationships that Kobe Dennis has with 
teachers, staff, school board members, uh, the local bargaining unit, all those sorts of things played into it. And, 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 and certainly, if you talk about the district's track record over the last few years, you talk about some of the things that Superintendent Coberly has accomplished. Certainly, uh, Kobe Dennis was a part of that leadership team uh, as the deputy, and, and so he's had a hand there as well. Uh, but to be continued, uh, yes. we'll continue to watch it. And like you said, we, we may have some news within about two weeks before uh, the Christmas break. It could happen fairly, fairly quickly based on all the indications. All right. It was a busy week. There was one, at least one other area that uh, you were tracking this week, and that was the superintendent schedule, the superintendent of public instruction schedule put out by Chair Yabara's office. Uh, we've been getting that pretty regularly on Mondays uh, and started publishing that recently as an accountability measure uh, to give some more insight into what the superintendent is up to. Um, when it came down Monday, it looked fishy, and as the week progressed, it started to look even fishier. What did you find? It's, it's been a fluid schedule, or at least a fluid uh, rollout of her schedule this week. So State Superintendent Sherry Barra spent most of this week in Washington, D.C. Ostensibly, she was going to Washington, D.C. to attend a national summit on education reform that was uh, being put on. Um, what we know, and this is from the schedule that uh, Abara's office put out first thing Monday morning, was that uh, Abara flew to D.C. on Tuesday, returned to Idaho late Thursday. The Education Reform Summit, that was you know the main reason she was going to, to Washington, that didn't begin until Thursday morning. And the only event that was on the calendar for that uh, summit on Wednesday was early registration. And you and I, we've been to enough of these conferences as, as journalists. Early registration means you, you, you get your little duffel bag with uh, your, your lanyard and you know the handouts. And, and Certainly something it. you don't need to fly it's across the country. not an all-day event, okay. So as, as, we, as we tried to press down into this a little bit further, uh, talking to Scott Phillips, uh, Ebar's new spokesman, he said that Abara had other things going on on Wednesday in D.C., that uh, she was sitting in on some meetings um, being put on by the National Conference of State Legislatures, and NCSL was having meetings in Washington. Without the Idaho people. Yeah. <laughs> who were here. Right. Well, right. Exactly. Because Idaho legislators were here for the, uh, the organizational session. Um, Phillips said that uh, Ibarra was attending a banquet uh, on Wednesday night that was being put on in conjunction with the Ed Reform Summit. We also later learned on Wednesday, via a news release from Ibarra's office, that she was meeting with Senator Jim Risch. Surprise! <laughs> yeah, to, to talk about her uh, school safety plan. This never came out on the schedule that was released by Ibarra's staff on Monday. And then you asked follow-up questions right. about and what we, else she and was we doing asked. In we were trying to get a feel for what was she doing in Washington, what, were, what was her itinerary, and, and Phillips didn't bring up this meeting with Risch on Monday. It came out via a news release. And I'm not really sure why. I mean, for one thing, I don't think you get a meeting with uh, a U.S. senator on a moment's notice. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> it doesn't work that way for reporters. I don't think it works that way for anybody. Um, and I don't think there's anything really cloak and dagger about the state superintendent meeting with a U.S. senator to talk about her school safety plan and to say, okay, you're a former county prosecutor. You're a former legislator. Yeah, how does this sound to you? I mean, I don't think there's anything, you know, inappropriate about a meeting like that or untoward about a meeting like that. So I don't really know why it, I, I don't know why this was such a, uh, a, a, 
an exercise in pulling teeth to find out what uh, Ibarra was doing on Wednesday. Here's what we also know, and this is, I think, significant for people to, to keep in mind. This Ed Reform Summit is going on as we speak here on Friday so she, morning. She got there before it even started she and left before, before it even ended. Exactly. And left sometime Thursday, got back late Thursday night, it was what we uh, were, were being led to believe. The conference was still going on on Friday without Ibarra being there. We did a public records request. We were actually kind of, kind of you know, snarkily uh, encouraged by uh, spokesman Scott Phillips to file a public records request to get to the bottom of this, which we were planning to do anyway. Uh, you know, thanks for the advice, but we were planning to do a public records request for this. What we have learned through the public records request and what we know so far through the request is that uh, the registration for this conference cost $599. Uh, that's what Abara has put in. Uh, no word if she got half time. off for attending half of it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. $599 is, is a one-day uh, special. My guess, yeah, I would think that's probably unlikely. So taxpayers are on the hook for you know, $600 for a conference that, and we don't know how much of it Abara was able to attend. We, we know that she didn't attend anything on Friday if she flew back on Thursday. And we don't know when she left uh, the conference to fly back on Thursday. So very, very much a a work in progress here to figure out exactly uh, what the schedule was uh, this week. Well, and, theoretically, and, also airfare, ground transportation, perhaps hotel, uh, you know. Yeah, we do have the airfare. We, we were able to report what the airfare costs. So right now we know that. We don't know about the hotel. We don't know about incidentals. So we're we're continuing to track this. Why do we continue to track this? You know, it's an accountability thing. I think it's important for people to see what the, the superintendent's schedule is. And as long as, uh, you know, and, you know, we're going to continue to, you know, look into this because, you know, we have heard concerns. And you've written about some of this, the concern about how engaged, how present is State Superintendent Cherry Ibarra. So we're going to look at the schedule and when we see things in it that seem uh unusual, uh, we're going to ask questions. So this is going to be, I didn't expect this to be part of my beat, but I think it is part of my beat, but it's also part of our job to keep track of this stuff. Well, Scott Phillips asked you on Monday why you're paying so close attention to the schedule. I think the way this week played out makes our point crystal clear why we pay so close attention to the schedule, because we can't count on the things that her office discloses in terms yeah. of her schedule. And yeah, when we learn about these here. things, when we learn about these things after the fact, it makes me wonder who else she was meeting with in Washington, D.C. What else was she up to that we don't know about when she was out there? So that, Scott, is why we ask and well, why we will continue to ask. And, and you know, and, and while we're on this, um, you know, one thing that uh, Scott Phillips has been doing the past couple of weeks is publicly releasing Ibarra's schedule to the extent that it's being released. Uh, we've been asking for the schedule for a couple of years. We've been kind of using it as an internal planner, as sort of a, a, a an early warning system into things that we should be asking about. But we we just began to publish the weekly schedule after the election. And looking back, we probably should have done this years ago. There have been <laughs> significant concerns about the superintendent's work schedule. Not once, not twice, not from one or two different people or specifically from her political rivals widespread speculation and questions. Right. And so to wrap to wrap it back up a little bit, uh, so we began publishing the schedule after the election. A couple of weeks after that, uh, Scott Phillips began to email out the schedule to all media as an advisory. And that's great. I mean, it would be, it'd be great if it was a complete schedule. Uh, 
But that's my point is, you know, if you're going to release the schedule and you're going to release it statewide to all media, you shouldn't be surprised if reporters come back with questions and say, hey, you know, can you clarify this? Can you fill in some blanks here? Especially when it doesn't add up two days later. Right. You, You can't have it both ways. You can't. Yeah, have your cake and eat it too and release the schedule and not expect to have reporters ask questions. It but they don't care. It just doesn't work that they way. They don't care. It, and anyway, stay tuned. <laughs> we, it, we should receive next week's schedule sometime maybe Monday and we'll follow it up and we'll do what We'll let you know how it evolves in. throughout the week, yeah, how it I stands mean, the test of we'll, time. We'll, you know. We will let you know what we know when we know it, and we'll uh, see where it goes from there. All right. I, I think that got to everything that I wanted to uh, get caught up but this week. One, but one thing we want to talk about, we would be remiss if we didn't bring up our town hall meeting. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he has that. Um, probably the highlight of the week for me was uh, Tuesday night. We had our town hall meeting to wrap up the Obstacles and Options series. Uh, eight panelists at the Boise State University Special Events Center talking about Idaho's 60% goal and some of the demographic challenges that we're facing to to reach that goal. Obviously, I'm biased because I have spoken to many of these folks at length in preparing for the series. I thought uh, I thought it was a really interesting and really illuminating uh, discussion about where we're going as a state, where our education system is going and how it's preparing high school graduates uh, to continue their education. I, I, we spent 90 minutes on the panel. As I said at the end, we could have spent another two hours because uh, you know, a really good group, really interesting comments, really engaged group, which is all a way of saying if you didn't catch it on Tuesday night, if you weren't there in person or catching it on Facebook Live, uh, Clark had a write-up of the the meeting of the town hall, and you can see it from start to finish. It's uh, embedded. I'd encourage you to take the time. It was, you know, you know it was such a good overview and such a, a, an interesting way to sort of wrap up the series, to let people hear directly from some of the folks on the front lines. Yeah, it was all about your series about pathways after high school. Um, you talked about college. You talked about affordability. You talked about career technical education. Folks talked about uh, taking a path to employment, taking a path to the military. But uh, the panel was fascinating. You had representatives from higher ed. You had a Idaho school superintendent there. You had a couple of first-generation college students there one talking about the barriers. Yeah, and, and um, they were terrific, both yeah. of them. And, and one thing, if there was a takeaway for me, was um, when we opened it up to questions from the audience, we had uh, a couple of questions about, well, how does pre-K and all-day kindergarten fit into this mix? And it kind of tied into Sonia Galavis, who's a fifth grade teacher in Boise, yeah. naturally, nationally recognized teacher, talking about, look, if, if we're serious about this, we've got to start to reach down into the elementary schools. We've got to start having that conversation with kids and, most importantly, have that conversation with their parents, too. You know... I talked about how this is a generational challenge, and it is a generational challenge. And if you're trying to change the system and the culture from pre-K through kindergarten through elementary school, you're talking about today's kids who are going to be in the workforce, who are going to be 25 to 34-year-olds in the workforce 15, 20 years from now. You're not going to get to a 60% number in seven years through what you do in the elementary schools or early education. But if you're going to do that, hoping you're going to get a, a dividend, 
down the road, you've got to realize that it's a down the road dividend. So, I mean, if there was a takeaway, we're not going to get here overnight. But I think we kind of knew that, or I think, uh, I, I hope I tried to make that point fairly clearly in the series. It's going to take a long time and it's going to take you know, a lot of commitment and, and a lot of uh, changing the culture early on in, in you know, students' academic, you know, academic lives. Yeah, that's what stuck with me. I think Sonia Galavis sounded kind of a challenge statewide. Uh, and that I led my story with that. I think that left an impression on you and everyone else in the room. And that's probably why uh, she's such an accomplished uh, teacher um, is because she's plugged in, because she's willing to issue those challenges, because she knows what's going on on the front lines. And she said, you know, I can tell you we are having those conversations in my fifth grade classroom. So good and, for and her. She, and she challenged me. I mean, we did an email exchange, she and I, uh, earlier in the week about the series and her reading of the series. She's like, we need to hear more from the business community from politicians and from parents. You know, there are, you know, there are a lot of perspectives to, to, this, uh, to this whole issue, and she's absolutely right. And, you know, you know given her background and her, uh, you know, her accomplishments as a teacher, that's uh, some of the best constructive criticism I've received in a long time. So uh, a lot still to look at in this and a lot still to, to talk about. But if you Take 90 minutes to uh, watch the uh, town hall if you haven't already. I think it's time well spent. Yep, certainly hop on the homepage and go back uh, to find the Obstacles and Options series. That's your series all about pathways after graduation, after high school. Eight-part series. We ran it uh, last week. That was kind of the culmination was the town hall uh, this week. And certainly want to thank our partners uh, in the local media and certainly uh, the Education Writers Association for uh, absolutely. their support. Absolutely. We had a lot of support and a lot of partnerships to make this happen. Um, Boise State Public Radio, Idaho Public Television, KIVI uh, were our broadcast partners. Uh, Boise State hosted the event. Uh, City Club of Boise helped get the word out. And EWA, as we've talked about before, uh, providing us some, some funding and some impetus to make sure that we took a deeper look at the 60% goal. So uh, none of this happens alone. And, and I don't do any of this alone. So, you know, really, you know, shout out to everybody here at Idaho Ed News for giving me the uh, the time and the latitude to, to follow the story where where it wound up going. Well, I think it's paying dividends, and, and I think you're gonna you have ideas to pick up and jump off from here. Uh, I think the forum was really uh, interesting, and we had some great voices represented uh, with that town hall forum. But a big week. Maybe next week will slow down. Regardless of whether it does or doesn't, we'll be back with another edition of the Extra Credit Podcast. Meanwhile, you can give us a follow at Idaho Ed News on Twitter to catch all of our breaking news stories. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.